It's the mysterious disappearance that has baffled the best investigators in the world, with no eyewitnesses and no forensic evidence. And almost five years on, we still don't know what happened to William Tyrrell. The three-year-old vanished while playing in his foster grandmother's yard on the morning of the 12th of September 2014. And just as hope was fading of any breakthrough, some bombshell new evidence at the coronial inquest has turned this investigation on its head. For the first time, we've heard from a local resident who is 100% certain he saw William after he was abducted. Ronald Chapman has told the inquest he spotted the toddler in a four-wheel drive that was speeding down his street that morning. He says William was standing in the back of the car with his little face peering out and his tiny hands firmly placed on the window. This is new and compelling evidence. We've never heard about this speeding four-wheel drive before, nor about a blonde woman behind the wheel. Some are asking why we didn't know about this sighting before. Why didn't Mr Chapman tell police about this important information straight away? And when he did, how far did police go in investigating this crucial new lead? Is this sighting of William being taken away from the scene in a speeding car the possible breakthrough his family has so desperately been hoping for? As the coronial inquest winds up for the year, what does this new evidence mean? And could it be the key to solving one of Australia's most chilling and mysterious crimes? I'm Natasha Belling. And I'm Leah Harris. This is Where's William Tyrrell? Leah, this is extraordinary new evidence we've heard at the coronial inquest because this is the first time we've had confirmation that someone in Kendall saw William after he was abducted. There have been upwards of a 1,000 reported sightings of William since he disappeared and the vast majority of them were clearly not credible right from the start. Some of them were investigated and ruled out and, and this is one of those many sightings. However, this is the first time that police have described it as credible. So it is a potentially significant sighting. So tell us about Mr Chapman and what he told the coronial inquest. Mr Chapman was living at 30 Laurel Street in Kendall, which is about one and a half kilometres from William's foster grandmother's house on Benaroon Drive. It was only a, a literally one or two minute drive from, from where he lived. And at the time he was travelling around the state and actually judging flowers at local shows and, and fates and that type of thing. So on the day, on September 12, 2014, he was expecting a delivery of some pot plants and being a Friday, he didn't want them to be left in the post office over the weekend. So he was eager awaiting the arrival of the, the postman to tell him that they had arrived. So he thought he heard the postman arrive and that's what made him walk out the front of his house. And he told the court that as he walked through his kitchen into the lounge room, he glanced at the clock and he remembers clearly that it said it was 10.45am. That's about half an hour after William is suspected to have been abducted or when he was last seen. That's when he saw a car coming from Batar Creek Road, which is the road that joins his street to Benaroon Drive. So it's the route that a car would take if it was coming from Benaroon Drive. And he said the car came around the corner onto his street at speed. He couldn't remember exactly how fast they were travelling, but he said the car was almost on two wheels and almost off the road as it came around the corner. And he said as it went past, he saw a young boy in the back seat standing up with his hands pressed against the window and looking outwards. 
He estimated that the boy was around three or four years old. He was standing and unrestrained, so not wearing a seatbelt, and he said he wasn't crying. He did notice that he was wearing a Spider-Man suit. He said he also had light, blondie, brownie coloured hair and was fair-skinned. He told the court this week that he noticed the Spider-Man suit and identified it as being a Spider-Man suit because the kids next door also had a similar costume and so that's what made him recognise that particular costume. He then claimed that a second car followed shortly behind at speed, took the corner in the same fashion, driving quite erratically and went past his house. And it wasn't until later that he saw on television on the news that there was a boy missing from Benaroon Drive and saw a picture of William Tyrrell that he concluded that that was the boy that he saw in the car. And Mr Chapman says that he is 100% certain that it was William in the car and crucially this is the first time we've heard about a beige four-wheel drive and a woman with blonde hair driving that vehicle that he saw William in. Is that correct? That's right. It's the first time we've heard about this woman and he described her as being in her late 20s to late 30s with a very fair complexion. Her blonde hair was combed up with a bow on top of her head. He said she was wearing a white short-sleeved blouse and described her as a bit plumpish. And this was the only other person in the car with the boy. She was obviously driving. Uh, And then he also saw a second car, which he described as a blue sedan coming from Batar Creek Road with heavily tinted windows. And he noticed that um, despite the tinted windows, he said the morning sun was shining into the front windscreen and he could see that it was a man. Now, the court was also shown a video walkthrough of Mr Chapman walking a detective through exactly what he saw that day out the front of his house, and this is what he said. How long was it between the first vehicle and the second vehicle? It would have only been a couple of seconds, I should imagine. Is it the car? Two. Well, when you saw that second car, did you pause on the steps at any time or did you keep walking down? I can't remember stopping. I, I yep. think I would have kept walking. Kept walking. Um, because I just thought it was a hoon. At, at the time, I, I didn't know what make it was, but I believe it to be now um, to our land cruiser. An old model, a boxed uh, type uh, vehicle yep. of a beige, beige in colour. It's almost five years since William disappeared, Leah. Mr Chapman was pretty convincing in court exactly what he saw and there was a lot of specific detail. Is that normal when someone's giving evidence? When police are trying to elicit information from a witness, they do ask them to be as detailed as possible and it has been five years and I imagine he's been asked several times to recount those exact details. However, he says he is 100% sure that the boy in the back of that car was William Tyrrell and I would say that's quite unusual for someone to be 100% sure of a sighting like that, particularly quite fleeting as the car went past quite quite quickly. So we were all surprised that he was so sure but he says he is 100% convinced it was William Tyrrell. So how credible is he as a witness? Is he a local? What do police think about that evidence? 
So Detective Sergeant Laura Beecroft actually testified last week and she was the uh, detective who interviewed Mr Chapman in that um, walkthrough video. She described him as a well-respected local man and she was asked if she thought he was making it up and she said she did not think that he was. However, we heard in court yesterday that um, Mr Chapman had apparently made a comment early on to a detective that he wasn't sure whether or not he had dreamed it and he was asked in court why he might have said that and then now says that he's 100% sure that it, it was what he saw. And he responded that he was sort of in shock about what he had seen and that something like this had happened in his town, that being the abduction of a child. And he said, I probably didn't explain myself very well and I didn't know whether I dreamed it or imagined it because we're just not used to that type of thing happening in this small community. This was a very high-profile case. Why didn't Mr Chapman immediately call police and tell them that he had seen William? He was asked this several times in court this week and he admits that that is a very good question. He told the court that he did immediately tell a lot of people. He told all four of his sisters, he told some neighbours, some local friends all about what he had seen but didn't actually go to police and he gave a number of reasons for that. Firstly, he said that he saw on TV that the detective in charge of the case from day one had made several announcements that they were going to come and interview everyone within a one kilometre radius of where William disappeared on Benaroon Drive. And he believed that that would include him. So he was waiting for them to come and knock on his door. And that's when he was going to tell them what he saw. That obviously didn't happen. And then as time passed, he was concerned that he hadn't told them earlier, that perhaps they might not believe him. He said he then spoke to the sister-in-law of a local police officer in early 2015 just at a local event and hoped that the message would get through to her somehow through those channels. So unfortunately it, it didn't, but it did get through to the local grapevine and that led to someone who didn't even know Mr Chapman had heard the info third hand and went into the Loriton Police Station in March of 2015 which eventually led to police tracking down Mr Chapman and speaking to him about this sighting in March 2015. So can I clarify, it was local gossip that then eventually made its way back to police that then they pursued this line of inquiry to track down Mr Chapman? That's right. So Mr Chapman never actually approached police himself about this. He told a lot of locals and then it eventually got back to the police and they tracked him down. So he was asked several times, why wouldn't you go to police about this? This was such a significant sighting. And he said in hindsight that he should have. Um, and he said he had second thoughts about it. He anguished about coming forward. He said eventually the investigation wasn't going anywhere, so he thought he should come forward. But as I said, he was waiting for detectives to come to him, which they eventually did, and he did concede he was also concerned that he hadn't come forward immediately, and so he was concerned about what they would think having come forward so long after it happened. Leah, some may say that people would struggle with why Mr Chapman did not tell police about this sighting, especially in the fact that it could have helped police actually find out what happened to him. Yeah, absolutely. The reaction this week has been why. If you're 100% sure that this was William Tyrrell, why would you not have told police straight away? And as we know in these cases, time is crucial. So that is definitely a question that was asked repeatedly and a question that continues to be asked. So once police contacted Mr Chapman, what did they do with this information? Have they been able to identify that four-wheel drive? Do they know who that woman is? 
They did initially think that it could have been a child from across the road who was known to have a Spider-Man suit, but the detective spoke to that child's mother and they established that it was not him and that wasn't her who was driving that car. So they have not been able to identify the woman, the driver or the little boy or the driver of the car who followed behind the blue sedan. So it wasn't until April 2017, though, that Mr Chapman actually did a formal statement that he signed, and it was also in April 2017 that he did that video walkthrough with police. And it was pointed out in court that there was no contact with Mr Chapman and police between the 11th of August 2015 and April 2017. So if this is a confirmed sighting of William and... There was a confirmation of a beige four-wheel drive and a blonde woman in a speeding car behind that vehicle. Why didn't police tell the public about this information? Why have we never known about this sighting from Mr Chapman? Look, it's difficult to say. As I said, this was one of upwards of a 1,000 reported sightings of William. However, you could argue it was a, a lot more significant than others. I can't speak to their reasons for that. Perhaps there were good reasons. I know that there were some doubts initially about the credibility, particularly, as I said, given he wasn't sure whether perhaps he dreamt it um, and the time that it took him to come forward. However, all I can say is that he has since been described by a police officer as credible. I also understand that Mr Chapman and William's foster grandmother knew each other. They did. The court heard that they were familiar with each other and this is a very small town so you would assume that most people are familiar with everyone in the town. However, it was also pointed out they didn't actually get along very well. But he was asked why he didn't at least tell the foster grandmother about what he had seen and he didn't really give a reason. He just said that he didn't think to and and didn't do that. Police have said this week, Leah, that Mr Chapman is a credible witness and he is convinced he saw William the morning he disappeared and after he was abducted. And police also issued a new warning for the public's help to try and track down this four-wheel drive or this woman that was seen with blonde hair. The counsel assisting the coroner, who is obviously um, liaising um, directly with police, finished off the hearing this week by issuing a plea for the woman who was driving that car to come forward and identify herself. Whether or not the boy in the back seat was William Tyrrell, at the very least, if she comes forward, they can rule that out. They also made an appeal for anyone who may have also seen that child in the back seat of that car to please come forward. Leah, this whole process is so incredibly frustrating for William's family. How do you think they would have reacted this week because you've been at the coronial inquest to this new evidence from Ronald Chapman because surely it would give them some element of hope that they may be able to find out what happened to William? They're obviously waiting for any leads that could potentially be significant and can give them some hope that perhaps this case could still go somewhere. The frustrating thing I would imagine for both sides of the family, the birth parents and the foster parents, is that this information wasn't brought forward straight away. And I think that is the most frustrating thing in this case is that because there is such a lack of evidence, to hear that someone may have been sitting on this crucial information for as long as they were must be incredibly frustrating and disappointing for them. The other person to give evidence this week at the coronial inquest, Leah, was a man by the name of Bill Spedding. He is a previous person of interest and was the local washing machine repairman. Tell us about that evidence. 
William's foster grandmother contacted Mr. Spedding about her broken washing machine on September 6 and he recorded this in his diary. The court was shown his diary this week. He then attended her house on September 9 to assess the washing machine. Interestingly, he told the court that he actually had trouble finding her house that day and finding Benaroon Drive because he'd never been there. So he stopped off at a local coffee shop in Kendall to ask for directions. William's foster grandmother told Mr. Spedding that she needed her washing machine fixed by the weekend because she was having visitors. As we know now, that was her daughter, her son-in-law and her foster grandchildren. So Mr. Spedding assessed the washing machine and then returned to his office that afternoon in Lauriton, ordered the parts that he needed to fix her washing machine and told her that he would let her know when they arrived so that he could schedule an appointment to return and fix it. Bill's wife, Margaret, testified first in court this week and she gave an alibi for her husband for the day that William disappeared. She and Bill say they were at a school assembly that day. They had kids in their care at the time in September 2014. We can't name or identify those kids for legal reasons, but they were um, their primary carers at the time. Their account of what happened is that Bill drove the kids to his office in Lauriton that morning and then walked them down the road to their school around 8.30. He had rearranged his appointments that morning to be at the school assembly at 10.30am to see one of those children receive a principal's award. So he and Margaret had arranged to meet at a cafe across the road from the school at about 9.30am and it's important to note that the Lauriton school that they were at was about 11 kilometres from Kendall where William disappeared. They told the court they both had coffees and some food at that cafe and the court was shown a receipt which said that a card linked to their account had purchased coffee and food at that cafe at 9.42am that morning. They claimed they then walked across the road to the school assembly for the 10.30am start. They watched the assembly together before leaving and it wasn't until that night they saw on the news that a little boy had gone missing and Mr Spedding recognised the house as the one that he had visited several days before. He then eventually returned to that house to fix the washing machine on September 18 and that's when he spoke to police. As you said, Leah, Margaret says she was with her husband the day that William disappeared and we heard more about that in court this week. So the court was shown a video walkthrough with Margaret and in that video she is being questioned by former lead detective Gary Jubilant in February 2015 which is shortly after he took over the investigation and he is asking her to walk him through exactly what happened that day. She has some trouble remembering the details of the school assembly and Mr Jubilant questions her quite a lot about that. We sat there, but I have a strong feeling it was out here. Okay, so you're not sure whether you sat inside or outside, but you're sure Bill was with you? He was. Can you explain why you're so definite on that, but you don't know whether you sat inside or outside? Well, we come to the together. He arranges his appointments for the assemblies, and we did. We went there, we come here, he went off, and done his service call after, and I went off and done my things. So you seem very confident when you say that, but you're not sure whether you were sitting inside or outside. Well, I can't, no. And why is that? Well, because we have a lot of assemblies. We, we had two children here at this school, and they both have assemblies, and they both get rewards. Right. So, um, as I said, I not many I miss. What about Bill? Does he miss many? No, he don't. Right. So 
you understand the significance. Oh, of I do. That and so, and you understand the importance of what we're investigating here. I know. Yes. So, what I want you to explain to me is how you're so convinced that Bill was with you on that that day. Well, he was because we had just had a coffee across the road. Yeah. Well, he was is is not an answer. That's what you. What I'm saying is what's. What are the trigger points? What are the things that make you confident that Bill was here on that day? Because we both arranged to meet for coffee before the assembly. He dropped the two boys off at school and he was to meet me up there. Right. At the coffee shop. So you, you're very I'm, confident on that? I am, yes. And then you've come down here? Yes. And... Who were you sitting beside? Oh, I don't know. Bill and I just come and we sit together and watch the assembly. Has is there anything that happened on this day? We're talking Friday the twelfth of September two thousand fourteen, and you appreciate the significance of that day. I do. Too. Is there anything on that day that uh, you can uh, say to us that? Uh, Bill spoke to this person or that person or an incident that occurred that uh, you could uh, demonstrate to us that you were here with Bill? Uh, well, I, I don't. I mean, you come to these and you, you see a, someone's face and you say hello, but you go on, get your seat to watch your show. Right. What did, uh, what did Bill say when... Uh, he was proud of me. I can't recall what he said. So while Margaret doesn't remember some of the details, including where they sat at the assembly, her husband Bill does remember that and he told Jubilin that in his own video walkthrough, which the court was also shown. This is some audio from that tape. I'm standing in the uh, school hall with uh, Mr uh, William Smetty. My name is uh, Detective Inspector Gary Jubilin. And uh, what did you see at that assembly? Well, the, the start of the assembly was the uh, um, school song. And then further in the assembly, the school choir sang Hallelujah. Uh, there was a play put on about the three little pigs. And uh, there was all the presentations made at the assembly. Uh, Mr. Timmons made a uh, principal's announcement and it lasted approximately an hour and a half. Okay, and the awards that were uh, handed out at the assembly? Well, we, we were here to see receive his principal's award. And did you see receive that award? I did, yes. And uh, what was said and what? how did that play out, if you could just explain what you saw? Oh, well, basically all the children were seen. Yeah. yeah. So is there anything that you can identify that occurred at that assembly that sets that assembly apart that would... Uh, Prove that uh, you were here. No, there was no, there was no unusual incident or anything like that. Um, it was the um, principal's award, and um, when it was all over, we just went out. So it's pretty clear then, Leah, if Mr. Spedding claims that he has evidence, including receipts from a cafe, that he could not have been involved in William's disappearance. That is his account. He and his wife say that he was at that assembly and obviously there is no way that they could have been involved in William's disappearance. 
What we do know separately from their own testimony is that there is a receipt for a card linked to their account at that cafe at 9.42 a.m. In terms of the actual assembly, the Speddings don't have concrete proof they were there, including photos or something to suggest definitely that they were absolutely there. They do recall the kids singing songs at that assembly, though, including Hallelujah!, Now, last week, a couple of other people gave evidence in relation to the assembly and whether or not the Speddings were there. A woman by the name of Angela Eschler testified that she attended an assembly on September 12. Her kids also went to the same school. She recalls the kids singing Hallelujah, but she doesn't remember seeing the Speddings or any of the other parents in particular there at that assembly. She does remember that it was on September 12 and that they were singing Hallelujah. Another person then testified about the same alibi, a man by the name of Gordon Weigold. He also had kids at the school at the time. He remembers the assembly where they sang that song and when the child in the care of Mr Spedding got an award, but he didn't remember which day it was. However, he clearly remembers that at that assembly where they sung Hallelujah and the child that was in the care of the Speddings got an award, he clearly remembers seeing the Speddings at that assembly. So that is what we know in relation to the assembly. It's not necessarily concrete proof that Mr. Spedding was definitely there, but it does suggest that it is highly possible that he was. Now, apart from the assembly, there is also some other important information about Mr. Spedding in relation to the foster grandmother's house, Leah. So it's important to note that, as we mentioned, Mr. Spedding was waiting for the parts for the washing machine to be delivered before he returned to the house to fix the washing machine. And we heard in court this week that the parts ended up arriving in two separate packages. Half of them arrived on Thursday, the day before William disappeared, and the rest of them arrived on the Friday at 12.19pm, which was a couple of hours after William disappeared. And the phone records show that he called the foster grandmother at 2.46pm on the day that William disappeared to notify her that the parts had all arrived. So it does suggest that he didn't have all the parts to the washing machine before William disappeared, suggesting that perhaps he wouldn't have had a good reason to go back to the house before those had arrived. Because there's always been the allegation that Mr Spedding returned to the foster grandmother's house. The theory around Mr Spedding being a person of interest was centred around the fact that he may have returned to the house to fix the washing machine at the time William disappeared. And this week we also saw police, especially the former investigator with the case, Chief Inspector Gary Jubelin, come under fire for his conduct, especially with Mr Spedding. So Mr Spedding had his own legal representation at this inquest and that was because he does claim that he was unfairly targeted by police and his lawyer did take a lot of opportunities to point out times where perhaps he was treated unfairly. It's important to remember that Hans Rupp was the first detective on this case. He took over the case in September 2014, just a few days after William disappeared, and he ran the investigation until around February in 2015. The investigation into Mr Spedding was launched by him. The first search of Mr Spedding's property was launched by Hans Rupp. 
It was a line of inquiry that was then inherited by Detective Chief Inspector Gary Jubilant when he took over the investigation. So throughout this inquest, Mr Spedding's lawyer has asked a lot of questions about the focus of the investigation, about what it took for someone to become a person of interest and the fact that there were a lot of them. He also asked about who had tipped off the media to the search at Mr Spedding's house, which then led to obviously a lot of scrutiny by the media, suggesting that he was a person of interest. And also the fact that the police allowed the public and the media to to continue referring to him as a person of interest, never publicly ruling him out. He also questioned that perhaps more police resources should have been used elsewhere instead of focusing on Mr Spedding. He also made a statement outside of the inquest this week. And what did he have to say, Leah? As I said before, he has always maintained he was unfairly targeted by police and that this has had a hugely negative impact on his life. So this is what he said this week. I'm very relieved to have told the coroner and the police everything I can to assist in finding out what happened to young William Tyrrell. Obviously the police and investigation and the media interests in mine and Margaret's movements have had a devastating impact on my life, my family's life and livelihood. I thank my family and my friends and my legal team in getting me through this. I know that I have been through is nothing compared to what William's families are going through now. I wish the coroner all wisdom in getting to the bottom of this mystery. Thank you. That's all. His lawyer also mentioned that they were not ruling out legal action against the police force. That's right. So his lawyer said that they are considering at the end of this inquest taking legal action against New South Wales Police for everything that has occurred in relation to Mr Spedding. Leah, this is, of course, one of the most baffling crimes the nation has ever seen because, as we know now, William was one of those cases that they allege about 3% of abductions that he was taken by a stranger. The concerning part, as you find out more and more about this ongoing investigation, is that there were so many different persons of interest, so many different lines of inquiry followed, and still five years on, we still don't know what has happened to William. What do you think is happening with the investigation? It's very difficult to know what is currently happening with the investigation and that is largely because huge parts of this inquest have been held behind closed doors, meaning that we haven't heard a lot of the crucial evidence that has been presented. There has been a lot of secrecy around the testimony and that makes it very difficult for us to really get a sense of what is going on behind the scenes with this investigation. Often the motive behind a coronial inquest is to be able to get new evidence or to spark new leads. Do you believe that's what's happening with this coronial inquest, that there could be an agenda or a strategy by the police force that we are just not aware of as yet? I certainly hope so. I certainly hope that there is a strategy that we're not aware of. Um, I have faith that that is what they are trying to do. Uh, it's hard for us to say because, as I said, we are being largely kept in the dark about what's happening behind the scenes. And there have been significant delays with this inquest. We, as we mentioned earlier, had 50 witnesses that were set to be heard and we've only got through less than half of those in this four weeks of hearings. And there have been a lot of days where we've had hours where the court wasn't sitting at all. So it does seem from an outsider's perspective that it's not making as much progress as you would have expected it to. However, it's very possible that there is a strategy 
going on behind the scenes that we're not aware of. William's foster parents believe there are serious agendas going on here with the ongoing investigation. Is that a fear that you are very aware of, is the fact that there seem to be so many agendas going on, especially even with the coronial inquest, that William almost seems to be forgotten about in this, that it's not about William? I have got the sense over the past four weeks several times that there's been a lot of debate and discussion and legal argument as well that didn't actually relate to William, that didn't relate to the investigation into what happened to William. And there is a concern amongst a lot of people at this inquest that the purpose is being forgotten a lot of the time. There is a lot of different agendas and a lot of ups and downs and twists and turns happening. And unfortunately, a lot of that is overshadowing the purpose of this inquest, which is to find out what happened to William. And talking about the family, it's been announced this week that the coronial inquest is being suspended and will not resume for another six months. William's poor family, both his biological parents and his foster parents, have had almost five years of no answers. How do they begin to cope with now a delay of another six months? It is a lengthy delay considering that this inquest had the preliminary hearing in December of 2018. We're now in September 2019 and it's not going to resume again until March 2020, over a year after it was initially launched. So it certainly does seem to be dragging out more than most other inquests I'm aware of and it means that we won't actually see a result from the coroner until at least mid-next year. And that is a long time for the families to be putting themselves through this type of testimony, through the waiting and the hoping that there's going to be a breakthrough. So it's excruciating for them. As I said before, though, we can only hope and assume that there is a strategy behind this. The thing that stands out for me this week was this new compelling evidence from Mr Chapman and... We started off this podcast talking about William's little face. And when Mr Chapman was describing him in that car, I can't stop thinking about that. And his little fingers on the window that in all of this, we have forgotten about this little boy that is still missing. I think that's a really important point and that's something that I hope everyone remembers through all of this, through all of the twists and turns this case has taken and the sensational developments that have happened throughout this case and more so than most other cases I'm aware of this has had some real curveballs and I think we all need to remember through all of this there is a little boy who is still missing and there are grieving family members who need to know what happened and that is the only thing that should matter. William's family is adamant that they will never give up on trying to find out what happened to their son. And police say their investigation into William's disappearance is ongoing. We will, of course, keep you posted on any new evidence or developments as they happen right here on Where's William Tyrrell. Where's William Tyrrell is produced and presented by Leah Harris in conversation with Natasha Belling. Produced and edited by Stuart Buckland. The recording and audio work by the 10 team of Mitch Willard, Bevan Tantu and Josh Pollock. You can contact the show at where'swilliam at network10.com.au. 
If you have any information that may assist this case at all, please contact police or Crime Stoppers on 1800 333 000. If you would like to find out more about the Where's William campaign, please visit www.wereswilliam.org. This has been a 10 News First podcast for 10 Speaks.